We are entering a new uh, sermon series. Uh, we began last week with the study of Philippians. If you have a Bible, we'll be there this morning. You can turn to the first chapter of Philippians. You're probably already there because you just listened to it read. Some of you have been asking in the past week or two since you heard about Philippians and the theme being joy in partnership in the gospel. Uh, you've been asking me for a biblical definition of joy. And uh, I want to wait on that for a while. Um, I want to keep you with me. And so I'm going to wait on the goods for a while, but I'm going to drop hints along the way. Uh, to start with, for example, the New Testament um, uses the word joy 59 times. Joy is used 59 times, and the word rejoice is used 96 times in the New Testament. Evidently, God's concerned with your joy and my joy. That's quite a bit of usage of that word or those words. So think about joy with me, if you would, from a biblical perspective. And first of all, I, you have in your notes, I think, these, this list of sentences. First, is joy is a gift from God. Joy is a gift from God. We read in Psalm 4, verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart. Who has? You have. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So your joy and my joy comes from God. All right? Secondly, joy is a product of the Holy Spirit. Joy is a product of the Holy Spirit. You know this, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the next one? Joy. And so it's a product of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. If you have the Holy Spirit, there ought to be joy, is the point. Thirdly, joy is a byproduct of believing the gospel. Not only is it a product of the Holy Spirit, it's a byproduct of believing the gospel. So if you're sitting there as a believer and don't feel that you're as joyful as you ought to be, maybe, maybe the cause is that you don't understand the gospel as deeply as you ought. I suggest that the more you understand the gospel, the more joy you will experience. This study in Philippians is for all of us who want more joy. If you don't, you can leave. You know, this is going to be for those who want more joy. If you just have too much and say, I've got enough joy, I can't take anymore, then this sermon series may not be all that great for you. But joy is a byproduct of believing the gospel. Jesus himself said, these things I have spoken to you. What things? Gospel things. He came to preach the gospel. These things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy would be full. With the gospel, with an understanding of the gospel, comes joy. Fourth, joy is a result of obedience to God's word. I don't know if you've discovered this by default or not, but when you're obedient, joy goes along with that. 1 John 1, 4, the apostle says, and we are writing these things to you, what things? These commands, so that your joy may be complete. Try this on. Try obeying this week and see if your joy goes up. I'm, I suspect it will. Number five, joy is deepened through difficulty. 
Joy is deepened through difficulty. Why? Well, think of this. When, when you go through hard times, we see a stark contrast between the, <clears throat> the world's view of circumstances and that settled confidence we have knowing that God is in control of our circumstances. There is a stark contrast there. The world says, oh, poor you. Look what happened to you. I can't, oh. And we say, God's got this. It's okay. There is a stark contrast, and that, that deepens our joy. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, as sorrowful, Paul was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing yet, possessing everything. And then James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Your joy is deepened through trials of various kinds. We're joyful because of the maturity that comes from the trials we face. So joy deepens our joy. I mean, joy deepens as we go through difficulty. Sixth. Joy grows when it's viewed through the lens of the future. And the, our future is pretty significant, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And it's a great future. Listen to it in Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. So look at what's going on in the, our future. We're going to be presented before God, what does it say? Blameless and with great joy. That brings joy. Seeing today through that lens brings joy. So there's just a short summary of what the Bible teaches about joy. This book that we're studying, this letter to the Philippian church, is going to encourage us down that road of joy. We're going we're to get a sense for what it means to be a joyful Christian, no matter what our circumstances may be. And I believe that our joy will be deepened and it will spread. It's contagious, you know. But let's, let's go back to Philippians now here and, and look at this introductory comments, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servant of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to go back to Acts 16 that we read last week and I talked about last week in depth. And I want to kind of remind you of how this Philippian church began. Okay? Um, the This church in Philippi began as a result of Paul's second missionary journey and he was with Silas with Timothy and with Dr. Luke um, and Luke by the way was the one who wrote Acts and the Gospel of Luke but only 20 years at the time of Acts 16 only 20 years had elapsed since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's not all that long and yet think of 20 years uh, how long it seems when you're raising toddlers. Uh, 20 years is a long time. But there is light at the end of the tunnel, young parents. Um, sooner or later you get to my age and you go, what happened? 20 years is nothing. But within 20 years from the time Jesus died and rose from the dead and this venture into Philippi, a lot had happened in the church. 
The gospel was spreading all over the world. The climax of world history had taken place in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the ongoing plan of salvation was moving full steam ahead, spreading across, across continents. This is what the book of Acts is about, the spread of the gospel in that first century. And so <clears throat> 11 of the 12 original disciples had mostly dispersed a few remained in Jerusalem, but mostly they had dispersed into the world to preach the gospel. The gospel was moving east, north, west, and south. It was going all over the place, including Philippi, 20 years after the resurrection. Philippi was northwest of Jerusalem, across the Aegean Sea, and Paul, along with Timothy, Luke, and Silas were together as they moved into Macedonia, northern Greece, southern Europe, to preach the gospel town to town. And so in Philippi, in Acts 16, we discovered there were three converts. You remember them. First was Lydia. She was a well-to-do woman. She was uh, self-employed, had a profitable business, owned her own home. She was well-respected in the community. Um, we know that she had an interest in God because she was going to prayer meetings down by the river, which means there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi yet. Otherwise, she would have been at the synagogue praying. But there wasn't one. So she was down by the river where evidently people gathered to pray in Philippi. And that's where she was when one day Paul and three of his friends walk up and starts preaching the gospel to this group of people. And we read that the Lord opened Lydia's heart and she received the gospel. She embraced Christ. She confessed her sins and came by faith into a relationship with God. And it is a wonderful picture in Acts 16 of how conversion works. Lydia was a religious but unsaved individual who woke up one morning unsaved, but then went to sleep that night as a baptized follower of Jesus. Amazing. And this may actually take place at Sun Valley Church today. Someone here may have woken up unsaved but religious. You're here, but you may go to sleep tonight as a transformed, saved follower of Jesus. That's how conversion works. The Holy Spirit draws those who he has called to himself and they respond to the gospel when they hear it, which is what you'll be doing this morning. So Lydia was the first convert. The slave girl, it seems, was the next. She was changed. She was demon-possessed one moment in her right mind the next. The Holy Spirit had entered her heart and changed her. But her change resulted in the arrest, uh, the arrest and imprisonment of Paul and Silas, remember. She was a moneymaker for her owners. And after she became a Christian, she stopped making money for them. She stopped fortune-telling. She no longer had a demon in her. But this changed, <laughs> upset her owners, and they threw Paul and Silas in prison as a result. But this imprisonment was God's strategy to get to the jailer. The jailer, remember him? He was the next convert in Philippi. God has, or was, recruiting him to his team, and he needed that jailer to hear the gospel. So he sent a preacher to jail. And there, Paul and Silas were singing hymns and so forth and so on, speaking of Christ, no doubt. And at midnight, there was an earthquake, and the jail started falling apart, and all the prisoners could have walked out with ease. And so the jailer, fearing for his execution, because that's what happened to jailers who lost prisoners, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself. And Paul says, hold on, everybody's still here. 
And then he runs into the presence, you remember, of Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? If anybody ever runs up to you with that question, you know God's at work, right? Have you ever had that? Someone walks up to you, what must I do to be saved? It's never happened to me, but it did to Paul. And it's evidence that God was at work in the jailer's heart. God was at work in that slave girl's heart. God was at work in Lydia's heart. That's how he works. He paves the way for the gospel to enter through the ears. And the heart responds when it hears the good news of the gospel. I think this should give us great, great encouragement as we think about our own evangelistic efforts. Those people that, that Rick prayed for this morning who we would love to come to know Christ when I preach, when I share the gospel with my friends, when you do the same and, and, and tell them about Jesus, we can be certain that God is at work before we even get there. It says in Acts 16, 14, that, that chapter that describes the beginning of the Philippian church, the Lord opened her heart, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what Paul had said. Paul didn't open Lydia's heart. God opened Lydia's heart. Paul was just faithful in sharing the gospel like you and I must be. God is the only one who can do the work of conversion. We are simply the vehicles through which the gospel travels. God must do his work. So back to Philippians chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. We see Paul here establishing a team. A team who would participate with him in the gospel. They're gospel participants. Um, it says in verse 4 and 5, always in every prayer of mine for all of you making a prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. He says this over and over by the way in Philippians which is why the theme is joy through partnership in the gospel. Paul is identifying the team in verses 1 and 2. He lists the team members. Last week North Carolina basketball coach Roy Williams recently, he just said this, that his, this year's team was the least gifted he'd ever had. You may read that. What a great way to encourage your team. <laughs> you guys are the worst I've ever had. Um, I'm sure that instilled great confidence in those young men. Paul here takes a different tact. Uh, he starts completely different. He doesn't say, hey... <laughs> Uh, I've seen better, you know, no. I remember when I was coaching uh, soccer at West Valley, I was always full of, of positive anticipation of the season, you know, and in preseason we'd, we'd, you know, be able to practice two weeks before the season started. And I had all sorts of, of hope and, and uh, anticipation for how well we would do. I remember going home to Sherry and saying, man, we got this kid, we got that kid, man, this is going to be a great season there's no way we're not going to get to the final four with this group, you know. And uh, I was excited about you know, almost every single team. Um, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 is that same kind of enthusiasm. He was excited about this team who was going to partner with him in the gospel. Um, he's excited. He's joyful about his teammates. He knew he had a winning roster. Um, Every, every team, of course, has a roster listing players with different roles. Um, everyone can't be quarterback. You know, when you're in peewee soccer, everybody gets a chance to play goalie. 
I don't know what it is in football and baseball. I'm sure it's the same. Everybody gets to pitch. But, you know, the farther up you get into competition, everyone can't be the quarterback. Everyone can't be the pitcher and so forth and so on. Everyone must play a role. And on, as in sports, so it is in the kingdom of God, every role is important. You, you can't have a baseball team with 11 pitchers. You're going to lose. You've got to have someone to play shortstop. Someone's got to catch. And that's how it is here in Philippians. Paul is laying out his roster with different roles. This is how we're going to move forward in this advancement of the gospel. Our team is going to do this together. And the first group he lists is servants. You see them? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Of course, of all New Testament characters except Christ, Paul was the most noteworthy, the most educated, the most privileged, the most decorated of all the Christians mentioned in the New Testament. But in chapter 3, verse 11, he, or 4 through 11 rather, he, besides mentioning all of his excellent qualifications and credentials, which impressed the Jews who would be listening, uh, Paul didn't see himself as an all-star. He saw himself as a humble servant. Even after listing all of his credentials, he had an other's first mentality. He even viewed all of his credentials, all of his qualifications, as rubbish in chapter 3 compared to knowing Christ. Timothy here, listed in verse 1, was with Paul at the time of the writing of this letter. He was a personal disciple of Paul. Paul had led him to Christ. Um, but he was not just a disciple, he was a cherished friend. And Paul called Timothy and himself servants of Jesus Christ. Now, if you recall, back in Psalm 119, verse 94, uh, I, I spoke about this issue of servant versus slave for an entire sermon. Um, the word there used, or that we see translated servant, is actually doulos, uh, a Greek word doulos, which the meaning of the word is slave, not servant. As I covered thoroughly in that sermon, the reason it's translated slave is because of the um, political incorrectness of using the term slave. Even back when it was translated back in the 1600s with the King James Version. And so it's translated servant, unfortunately. Um, the, the word doulos actually means owned by another. Servants aren't owned by another. Slaves are owned by another. If you're owned by another, you're a slave who is subservient to and dependent on that person. Your life is not at your disposal, it's at their disposal. Servants are paid and can choose to do or not to do a job. Slaves don't have that prerogative. Slaves do what they're told. It was common practice for Paul to refer to himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul had plenty that he could have said about himself and in the opening sentence to build himself up, to make himself as the most important of the team, but he didn't. He could have discussed his apostolic credentials, which he did in 1 Corinthians. He could have discussed his education. He could have discussed his experience. But he says this, Paul, a slave of Christ. That's how he introduces himself. That should tell you something about the coming content of this book. This was Paul's perspective of himself. He believed that he was owned by Christ. He lived at Christ's disposal. He wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you, 
were bought with a price. You remember that verse? So glorify God with your body. You are not your own. You are owned by another. You're a slave. So glorify God with your body. Sun Valley Church, do you view yourself as a slave of Jesus Christ? Have you given up all prerogatives? The team members who are on Christ's team are slaves, not servants. We're slaves. I think this must be the attitude of all of us. If we truly want to participate on the team with Christ, with the, the church, for the cause of the gospel, we, we cannot have our own agenda if we're going to be on Christ's team we cannot act independently and think that we're on our own mission, on our, our own program. And if, it, and if the church fits into that, then I'll go along with that. But as soon as it doesn't, then I'm going to do my own thing. No, we can't think that way. We can't think that we're above others in the church or more important than others in the cause of Christ. And, and this, this mutual submission is preferring one another, resurfaces all over the place in the letter of Philippians because it's critically important to the success of the mission. It's critically important to your joy. So when Paul began this letter, he introduces himself as the slave of Christ. But when he introduces himself to the Corinthians, he introduces himself with great authority. He says, Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, pay attention. He says to the Corinthians, why the difference? Well, because in Corinth, there was unfortunate and sinful attitudes surrounding the Christians in Corinth's desire to have status over the other Christians. They were vying for position, for recognition. And so Paul had to begin that letter by establishing his authority right off the bat. Paul, an apostle, which you are not, is what he did at the beginning of the Corinthian letters. But he quickly got to the point to the church in Corinth. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5. Paul said, for when one says, I follow Paul... I'm with Paul. He's my guy. Or I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Now, this is interesting. Paul asked, what is Apollos? What is Paul? That is a little odd and grammatically wrong. Because they're not what, they're who. But he said, what are they? To make the point, it's not about who you are, it's about what you are in the church. You, Christian friends at Sun Valley, are slaves. You're not who, you're what. And this is critical if we're going to be a successful local church joining Christ in his kingdom purposes. We can't be all concerned about who we are or who they are. Well, if they're something, I'm going to go hang out with them. No. It's what we all are that's important. Slaves of Christ. Listen to what he said to the Corinthians in his second letter. Evidently, they were still struggling. Chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul said, I'm not the Lord. 
Christ is the Lord with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. What a piece of information this is. Here Paul not only establishes the important relationship he had with Jesus, he is Lord, I am not, but also his relationship with the Corinthians. I am your servant, I'm your slave. Paul was highlighting the point that there's only one Lord and his name is Jesus Christ. The second that we have someone else thinking that they are Lord, even in the church, we're going to have significant problems. We have one Lord and he has commanded us to serve one another. We are to see each other as more important than ourselves. We'll see this very clearly when we get to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We must be able to say to each other, I will always be your servant, but you will never be my master. Did you hear that? I will always be your servant, but you will never be my master. Why do we say it that way? Because we only have one master, and it's not you. It's not me. It's Christ. And yet I will serve you because he has commanded me to serve you, and I love him. This is an important distinction as we move forward at Sun Valley Church in the cause of Christ. We must be all in on serving one another, but we must not serve to appease or to impress one another. We serve Jesus by serving each other sacrificially. So the first group here, the team members, were Paul and Silas, slaves of Christ Jesus. Secondly, we see saints. You see that? To all the saints. There's the next group on the roster. All the saints. Henry Ironside, a preacher, theologian, pastor from the last century, well-known, wrote commentaries and so forth. He was traveling by train from the west coast to the east coast, took four days to make that trip. And in his car, his, the train car that he was in, there were nine nuns doing the same trip. And uh, they got to know each other and enjoyed one another. And they got out their Bibles and began to read and think about the scriptures. And at one point along the trip, uh, Ironside asked if they had ever seen a saint. And they said, of course not. And Henry Ironside said, well, I have a surprise for you today. Now you've met one. He goes, I'm St. Harry. <laughs> so... <laughs> You understand, you understand the humor in that. If you understand Roman Catholicism, right? Saints to them are revered people who are officially canonized after death because they have attained some demanding criteria. That's the only thing that can make them saints. And of course these nuns have not met a dead person, right? But when the New Testament refers to saints, it's completely different. The saints referred to here in... in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, and all over the New Testament are simply those who have been saved. If you're saved, you're a saint in the New Testament. The word holy and the word saints both come from the same Greek word in the New Testament, hagios. And we know that holy means to be set apart, right? And so if that word holy and that word saint is the same word, it means that saints are simply those who are set apart. If you're a believer today, you've been set apart for God's work. 
You've been taken out of the population of the world and put into the population of the church for the purpose of serving God. You're set apart. You're holy. You're a saint. When people ask if someone is a saint, they usually aren't referring to those who have been set apart. They're referring usually to those who are really good people. They say, oh, so-and-so is a saint. Have you seen how she's dealing with her boss? Oh, she's a saint. But saint is not a title of the spiritually mature ones. It's, it's not a title of an outstanding Christian. It's simply a title of those who are genuine believers in the New Testament. Saints in Philippi. Saints at Sun Valley Church. So if you've confessed your sins to God, have asked for his forgiveness, embraced his son Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a saint in the eyes of Paul and in the eyes of God. And ought to be in each other's eyes. I'm a saint and you're a saint not because we're good and righteous, but because we are in the one who is good and righteous. We are in Christ. And so we are saints. He has given us or imputed to us his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness. And so we, in God's eyes, in Paul's eyes, in each other's eyes, if we think clearly, are saints. In Paul's letter, he uses the phrase, in Christ. So Paul's written a lot of letters here in the New Testament. He's using the term in Christ 75 times. And in the Lord 45 times. Are you in Christ this morning where you sit? So the question this morning is not if you're in church, but if you're in Christ. I'm glad you're in church, but being in church doesn't mean you're in Christ any more than being in a garage means you're a car, right? So you can be here and not be in Christ. So are you in Christ? Have you embraced the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you confessed your sins? Have you run to the only one who can save and forgive, save you and forgive your sins? Jesus if so, you're a saint. So if you're going to be part of the team that's in partnership with God and with Paul and with Christ and all who are in Christ for the cause of the gospel, then you must be in Christ. You can't be on the team unless you're in Christ. You must be like Lydia. You must be like the slave girl. You must be like the jailer. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Are you in Christ? The next group on this team roster are overseers and deacons. You see that there? Verse 1, to all the saints, Paul and Timothy, servants, that's the first group. Saints, the second group, with the overseers and deacons. There's the third group that are on the roster, that are on this team, that are partnering for the cause of Christ, partnering for the gospel. Paul includes these folks as team members, that is, overseers and deacons, those who are called to lead local churches. In Paul's view, they are important team members, but they are with the saints. Did you notice that? He didn't say those of you who are over the saints. He said those of you who are with the saints. Overseers and deacons ought to be with the saints, not over the saints. And this is an important preposition. They're not above them, they're with them. They work side by side with them for the cause of Christ in partnership with the gospel. The term overseer is also translated elsewhere in the New Testament as elder. Elders are referred to as pastors. 
shepherds. And at Sun Valley Church here today, we have seven of us that are elders, pastors, shepherds. And elders and pastors are simply responsible to lead the church by teaching, discipleship, discipline, prayer. That's their role in the team. Deacons also are mentioned here, and they're primarily focused on the practical service to the saints in the local church. Elders and pastors and deacons are all important part of the team, as are the saints, the slaves. All are slaves. And then, of course, we come to the most important member of the team. You see it in the first line. Paul and Timothy, servants of who? Christ Jesus. He's also on the team. In fact, he's the team captain. He's the reason this team exists. He is God and the architect of this team. He's the owner, the general manager, whatever you want to put in there, he's that. He chooses who will be on his team and orchestrates how the team will operate. This is what we're going to do. When we first get here to practice, we're going to warm up. Then we're going to run a mile. And then we'll come over here and practice this and practice that. And then we're going to go out in the game and we're going to do it. If you'll turn with me to Ephesians, that's back a page or two. Um, Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read for you how Paul identifies this team to the Ephesian church. Just so you don't think that I'm pulling this team concept out of thin air. Here it is in Ephesians also. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. And he, that's Jesus, he's talking about Jesus. And Jesus gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists and shepherds and teachers, he gave those people, that's a group of the team. They are apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. There's the next group. To do what? For the work of the ministry. To partner in the gospel. For the building up of the body. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. who, To mature manhood. To the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what the team is about. Let's go back to Philippians 1. So Jesus Christ is the team leader. And he makes sure the team has all the appropriate roster members. And in verse 2, we come to the team cheer. And what's a team without a team cheer? Come on. Really. Especially if you're in girls' sports. I mean, have you ever seen girls' softball team cheers? It like takes an inning Three outs and that team's still cheering over there about something. This is common in uh, female team sports. I know. I coached some girls. I let them have the first team cheer. And they did their thing, you know, one foot in, one foot out, you know, and do this and that and have words that are associated with their movements. And, and then they're off to start the game. And they had, you know, different cheers, you know, for different things and so forth and so on. I, and I took control of the cheer at halftime when they came back in and they had either performed well or not. And then I was about ready to send them back on the field. It was my turn for the cheer. And it was the same cheer every single time. Very creative. Listen, on three, we're going to say win. One, two, three. Win. That was it. 
And they, no foot, no movements, nothing, just win. Yeah, that's it. Win. And they went back out there, and most of the time they won. Probably not because of the cheer, but that was my participation in the matter. So the church also has a team cheer, and it's in verse 2. Look at it. Grace and peace. That's what we would do if we got in a huddle. On three, grace and peace, grace and peace. That would be our cheer because of the importance of those two words to the Christian life and to the cause of Christ. Can you think of a more important word than grace in the Christian life? I can't. It's important to keep in mind the source from which we receive grace and peace. Do you see that in verse 2? Grace to you and peace from who? God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The team leaders deliver grace and peace to their people. The team captain is very interested in providing the team with everything they need to do well in partnership with the gospel so that we might accomplish our goal of winning. Grace is the most important and amazing element in our team's belief system. Unmerited favor. Where would we be without that? Where would we be if, if God's favor required merit on our part? Where would we be if there was no grace? We would be where we were before we knew Christ. Lost and hopeless in this world. In darkness. But now we have grace, unmerited favor. Unmerited favor of God. You can't earn grace. If the minute you try to earn it, it ceases being grace and becomes your due. But it is grace. And I think we need this necessary reminder often because of our tendency as humans to think that we are what we are because of our intrinsic value. Well, I'm in Christ because, fill in the blank, I'm so smart, I'm so good looking, I'm so good with words, I'm blah, blah, blah. No, it's unmerited favor is why you're in Christ. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us that in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Unmerited favor. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. You simply receive it and respond with thanksgiving. That's it. <laughs> the gospel's so simple, people miss it. God grants grace, you receive it and simply say thank you. Christ died for rebels. He didn't die for the righteous. He didn't die for the, the perfect ones, the ones who had it all together. He died for sinful rebels. He, had, he died for those who have no interest in him, who had no desire to follow him. You might be thinking, well, Pastor John, grace will never reach me. You don't know what a mess I'm in. You don't know the mess I am. But God's grace is abundant and reaches to the worst. 
Paul called himself the worst of sinners in 1 Timothy. Listen to what Paul wrote. Listen to what the worst of sinners wrote in Romans 5.20. Now the law came to increase trespass, and that's so true, right? All these things that now we know are wrong. You know, the Bible lists all these things that now we know are wrong. It increases our guilt. I didn't know that coveting someone else's stuff was wrong. Now I do. It tells me so in Scripture. So Paul's saying the law came and just bore down weight on our guilt. But, don't you like those words? But, where sin increased, that is where we got so burdened by the law that revealed our sin, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The more you sin, the more grace is evident. So don't tell me you're outside the reach of God's grace. In fact, the further out there you are, the more glorious God's grace is. <laughs> no one's outside of the reach of God and his grace. The bigger your mess, <laughs> the more glorious his grace And, of course, grace always must precede peace. There's no peace without grace. There's no peace with God. There's no peace with one another. There's no peace with yourself without grace. And so grace always precedes peace. And we all like peace. We all want peace with God, with ourselves, with our neighbors. And grace must be introduced first, which is why Paul does. Romans 5.1, there is... Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, now we know who the team members are. Are you on the team? Do you know Christ? Are you set apart for your participation in the gospel? Well, our goal here as we study through this wonderful letter is to joyfully move forward in the cause of Christ together. And God reminds us of our role. Rejoice this week, friends, that you're included on God's team because of grace. And thank him for all the peace that that brings to your soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've included us, those of us who have come to Christ and embraced your son Jesus. You've included us on your team, your gospel team so that we might be partners in this great drama in human history called the gospel. I pray that you would cement these truths into our minds and hearts this morning. Remind us of the importance of knowing our place as slaves in relationship to Christ and his church. Help us to embrace that role to live it to the full. God, we are so thankful for the things that we've heard this morning, for your word that reveals these things so clearly. Bless us now as we go our way. Grant us the peace that comes with the grace that you've given. If there is anyone in this room this morning, Father, that has yet to experience your grace and peace, I pray that by your spirit you will have prepared their hearts. You have made them ready for the gospel. 
so that they simply may come humbly by prayer, acknowledging their sin to you, their God and Savior, and embracing the solution to their sin problem, Jesus Christ, who came to live and die to make a way that they may be forgiven, to make a way that they may walk with God, their Savior and Creator. Do that now, God, by your mercy and grace. Bless us all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.